Chapter Thirteen of Children of the Ghetto by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Thirteen: A Silent Family. Sugarman the Shadchan arrived one evening a few days before Purim at the tiny two-story house in which Esther's teacher lived with little Nehemiah tucked under his arm. Nehemiah wore shoes and short red socks. The rest of his legs were bare. Sugarman always carried him so as to demonstrate this fact. Sugarman himself was rigged out in a handsome manner, and the day not being holy, his blue bandana peeked out from his left coat-tail instead of being tied around his trouser-band. "'Good morning, ma'am,' he said cheerfully. "'Good morning, Sugarman,' said Mrs. Hyams. She was a little careworn old woman of sixty, with white hair. Had she been more pious, her hair never would have turned grey. But Miriam had long since put her veto on her mother's black shuttle. Mrs. Hyams was a meek, weak person and submitted in silence to the outrage on her deepest instincts. Old Hyams was stronger, but not strong enough. He, too, was a silent person. "'Perhaps you're surprised,' said Sugarman, "'to get a call from me in my sealskin vest coat. But the fact is, ma'am, I put it on to call on a lady.' I dropped in here on my way. Uh, "'Won't you take a chair?' said Mrs. Hyams. She spoke English painfully and slowly, having been schooled by Miriam. "'No, I'm not tired, but I will put Nehemiah down in one, if you permit. There. Sit still or I pot you. Perhaps you could lend me your corkscrew.' Uh, "'With pleasure said Mrs. Hyams. "'I thank you. You see, my little boy, Ebenezer, is bar mitzvah next Shabbos a week, and I may not be passing again. You will come.' "'I don't know,' said Mrs. Hyams, hesitatingly. She was not certain whether Miriam considered Sugarman on their visiting list. "'Oh, yes, you must.' I expect to open thirteen bottles of lemonade. You must come, you and Mr. Hyams and the whole family." "'Oh, thank you. I will tell Miriam and Daniel and my husband.' "'That's right. Nehemiah, don't dance on the good lady's chair. Do you hear Mrs. Hyams and Mrs. Jonas's luck?' "'No.' I won her eleven pounds on the lottery. Oh, how nice, said Mrs. Hyams, a little fluttered. I would let you have half a ticket for two pounds. I haven't the money. Well, thirty-six shillings. There, I have to pay that myself. I would if I could, but I can't. But you can have an eighth for nine shillings." Mrs. Hyams shook her head hopelessly. "'No, 
"'How's your son Daniel?' Sugarman asked. "'Pretty well, thank you. How is your wife?' "'Thank God.' "'And your Bessie?' "'Thank God. Is your Daniel in?' "'Yeah.' "'Thank God. I mean, can I see him?' "'It won't do any good.' "'No, not that,' said Sugarman. "'I should like to ask him to do bummits for myself.' Uh, "'Daniel,' called Mrs. Hyams. He came from the back yard in rolled-up shirt-sleeves, soap-suds drying on his arms. He was a pleasant-faced, flaxen-haired young fellow, the junior of Miriam by eighteen months. There was will in the lower part of the face, and tenderness in the eyes. "'Good morning, sir,' said Sugarman. "'My Ebenezer is by mitzvah next Shabbos week. Will you do me the honour to drop in with your mother and father after shul?' Daniel crimsoned suddenly. He had no on his lips, but suppressed it and ultimately articulated it in polite periphrasis. His mother noticed the crimson. On a blonde face it tells. "'Don't say that,' said Sugarman. "'I expect to open thirteen bottles of lemonade. I have lent your good mother's corkscrew.' I shall be pleased to send Ebenezer a little present, but I can't come, I really can't. You must excuse me." Daniel turned away. "'Well,' said Sugarman, anxious to assure him he bore no malice, "'if you send a present I reckon it be the same as if you come.' Uh, "'That's all right,' said Daniel, with strained heartiness. Sugarman tucked Nehemiah under his arm but lingered on the threshold. He did not know how to broach the subject, but the inspiration came. "'Did you know I have summoned Morris Kerlinski?' "'No,' said Daniel. "'What for?' "'He owes me dirty shillings. I found him a very fine maiden, but now he is married. He said it was worth only a sovereign. He offered it to me, but I wouldn't take it. A poor man he was, too, and got ten pound from a marriage portion society. Is it worth while bringing a scandal on the community for the sake of ten shillings? It will be in the paper, and uh, Shadkin will be spelt Shatkan, uh, Shodkin, Shatkin, uh, Chodkan, Shotgun, and goodness knows what else. "'Yes, but it isn't ten shillings,' said Sugarman. "'It's thirty shillings.' "'But you say he offered you a sovereign?' "'So he did. He arranged it for two pound ten. I took the sovereign, but not in full payment.' "'You ought to settle it before the Beth din,' said Daniel vehemently. "'Or get some Jew to arbitrate.' You make the Jews a laughing-stock." "'Is it true all marriages depend on money?' he added bitterly. "'Only it is the fashion of police reporters to pretend the custom is limited to the Jews.' "'Well, 
"'I did go to Reb Shmuel,' said Sugarman. "'I thought he'd be the very man to arbitrate.' "'Why?' said Daniel. "'Why? Hasn't he been a Shadchan himself? From who else should we look for sympathy?' "'I see,' said Daniel, smiling a little. "'And apparently you got none.' "'No,' said Sugarman, growing wrath at the recollection. He said, we are not in Poland. Quite true. Yes, but I gave him an answer he didn't like, said Sugarman. I said, and when we are not in Poland, mustn't we keep none of our religion? His tone changed from indignation to insinuation. Will you not let me get you a wife, Mr. Hyams? I have several extra fine maidens in my eye. Come now, don't look so angry. How much commission will you give me if I found you a maiden with a hundred pounds?" "'The maiden!' thundered Daniel. Then it dawned upon him that he had said a humorous thing, and he laughed. There was merriment as well as mysticism in Daniel's blue eyes. but. Sugarman went away downhearted. Love is blind, and even marriage brokers may be myopic. Most people not concerned knew that Daniel Hyams was sweet on Sugarman's Bessie, and it was so. Daniel loved Bessie, and Bessie loved Daniel. Only Bessie did not speak, because she was a woman and Daniel did not speak because he was a man. They were a quiet family, the Hyamses. They all bore their crosses in a silence unbroken even at home. Miriam herself, the least reticent, did not give the impression that she could not have husbands for the winking. Her demands were so high. That was all. Daniel was proud of her and her position and her cleverness, and was confident she would marry as well as she dressed. He did not expect her to contribute toward the expenses of the household, though she did, for he felt he had broad shoulders. He bore his father and mother on those shoulders, semi-invalids both. In the bold bad years of shameless poverty, Hyams had been a wandering metropolitan glazier. But this open degradation became intolerable as Miriam's prospects improved. It was partly for her sake that Daniel ultimately supported his parents in idleness and refrained from speaking to Bessie, for he was only an employee in a fancy goods warehouse, and on forty-five shillings a week you cannot keep up two respectable establishments. Bessie was a bonny girl, and could not in the nature of things be long uncaught. There was a certain night on which Daniel could not sleep—hardly a white night, as our French neighbours say, a tear-stained night, rather. In the morning he was resolved to deny himself Bessie. Peace would be his instead. If it did not come immediately, he knew it was on the way, for once before he had struggled and been so rewarded. That was in his eighteenth year, 
when he awoke to the glories of free thought and knew himself a victim to the moloch of the sabbath to which fathers sacrificed their children the proprietor of the fancy goods was a jew and moreover closed on saturdays but for this anachronism of keeping saturday holy when you had sunday also to laze on daniel felt a hundred higher careers would have been open to him later when free thought waned it was only after daniel had met bessie although he never returned to his father's narrowness he found the abhorred sabbath sanctifying his life it made life a conscious voluntary sacrifice to an ideal and the reward was a touch of consecration once a week daniel could not have described these things nor did he speak of them which was a pity once and once only in the firmament of free thought he had uncorked his soul and it had run over with much froth and henceforth old mendel hyams and bina his wife opposed more furrowed foreheads to a world too strong for them if daniel had taken back his words and told them he was happier for the ruin they had made of his prospects their gait might not have been so listless but he was a silent man you will go to sugarman's mother he said now you and father don't mind that i'm not going i have another appointment for the afternoon it was a superfluous lie for so silent a man he doesn't like to be seen with us bina hyams thought but she was silent he has never forgotten my putting him to the fancy goods thought mendel hyams when told but he was silent it was no good discussing it with his wife those two had rather halved their joys than their sorrows they had been married forty years and had never had an intimate moment their marriage had been a matter of contract forty years ago in poland mendel hyams had awoken one morning to find a face he had never seen before on the pillow beside his not even on the wedding day had he been allowed a glimpse of his bride's countenance that was the custom of the country and the time bina bore her husband four children of whom the elder two died but the marriage did not beget affection often the inverse offspring of such unions bina was a dutiful housewife and mendel hyams supported her faithfully so long as his children would let him love never flew out of the window for he was never in the house they did not talk to each other much bina did the housework unaided by the sprig of a servant who was engaged to satisfy the neighbours in his enforced idleness mendel fell back on his religion almost a profession in itself they were a silent couple at sixty there is not much chance of a forty-year-old silence being broken on this side of the grave 
so far as his personal happiness was concerned mendel had only one hope left in the world to die in jerusalem his feeling for jerusalem was unique all the hunted jew in him combined with all the battered man to transfigure zion with the splendour of sacred dreams and girdle it with the rainbows that are builded of bitter tears and with it all a dread that if he were buried somewhere else when the last trump sounded he would have to roll under the earth and under the sea to jerusalem the rendezvous of resurrection every year at the passover table he gave his hope voice next year in jerusalem he said in her deepest soul miriam echoed this wish of his she felt she could like him better at a distance benahayams had only one hope left in the world to die End of chapter 13